Hi, I'm Mora, and I'm a member of the Rational Dress Society. She actually meant to say that she's Comrade Mora, and <laughs> I'm Comrade Abigail, also of the Rational Dress Society. Hello, my name is Colin Bean, and welcome to The New Constructivist, a show about work. For the bulk of this episode, you'll be hearing fashion designer Abigail Glom Lathbury and artist Mara Brewer, also known as the Rational Dress Society. They discuss jumpsuit, their alternate approach to fashion, and their personal and systemic inspirations for rethinking what a clothing line could be. As you may know, the vast majority of our clothes are made offshore under brutal conditions and designed not to last to keep you buying more. In contrast, jumpsuit is made in America with domestically sourced materials for a fair wage and aims to be the last garment you ever need regardless of size, body type, or gender. Mara and Abigail also speak frankly about how they sustain this work and where they're going next with the project. Their work is a radical rethink of design using ethical production that demonstrates a future not just for clothing, but for other goods we use every day. I hope it will inspire you as it did me. Can you start by going through the jumpsuit project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so jumpsuit is the ungendered open source monogarment for everyday wear to replace all clothes in perpetuity. That's our spiel. Basically, we designed jumpsuit because we were frustrated with the kind of limitations of the ways that clothes were bought and sold and worn, right? Like, I, you know, some of it is just like, we wanted something to wear. I particularly wanted something to wear that I could wear every day. That's been like a long time dream of mine. I think that's a dream that's common to like many artists and creative people. Um, so, you know, just sort of starting from like the immediate practicalities, like I wanted something that I could wear so that I, you know, A, I didn't have to spend creative energy putting together an outfit in the morning if I didn't want to. And B, it always seems interesting to me as an artist, if I'm making a decision like that to wear a personal uniform, to think about the ways in which that might also be a project and might extend outward. So we were having a lot of conversations about identity and dress. And um, Abigail and I have been friends for a long time since we were 18. We had a feminist club together in undergraduate school at art school. And uh, so we I were... Could, I could relate to that. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> So really jumpsuit is just like feminist club 2.0 in some ways. So we were basically having these conversations about like artistic identity and persona and, um, but also economics, mm -hmm. right? And, and like, economics. And like, yeah. the, like the way that as an artist, you're, um, frequently, you frequently find yourself moving from, uh, like moving between different spaces that have like radically different, um, economies. Uh, so like being in your studio and then having, you know, to go to some gallery event or studio visit or where, where, you know, collectors are. And so like, how do you, how do you mitigate the anxiety around that? Like the sort of the, the way that clothes project class. Yeah. And so one of the ways that I think you can do that as an artist is by like making your clothes an extension of your work in some way. Meanwhile, Abigail had been running her line for 10 years mm -hmm. and was ready to not do that anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that had, decision had happened before we started talking about yeah. jumpsuit. Yeah. Well, we were having these conversations about what we should wear, and I wanted to wear jumpsuits. <laughs> I've always loved jumpsuits, you know. And, and I've always clothed Mora. Yeah, yeah. Abigail's always made me clothes. And she was like, well, I'll just make you one. And then the more we talked about it, the more it seemed like actually it was a project. Yeah. And it was sort of timed in this beautiful way where Abigail was sort of ready to try basically anything else, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah um, absolutely. And so it became this project mm -hmm. um, that has 
gone on to be like really fucking fun. To me, the thing that's really delightful about the project is that it's very tangible and immediate and it solves problems. But that immediacy is necessary as a platform to be able to talk about larger structural issues, which are more abstract. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and can you go into those more specifically? Yes. <laughs> um, where to start? Okay, um, so, so just to talk a little bit more about what Jumpsuit is, um, so Jumpsuit is basically our attempt to make a universal garment. Um, when we were thinking about, well, what is it that we want to wear? Like, it doesn't make sense to make a garment that doesn't try to do everything. Um, and so that's like a major part of jumpsuit is that like, if we can like close our eyes and imagine like the most utopian gesture um, that we, those are the decisions that we try to make. So jumpsuit um, is open source, which means that you can either buy a pre-made garment from us um, or you can download our pattern and we have an instructional video. Um, that'll show you how to make it, or you can attend one of our workshops and we'll teach people how to make the garment. One of the things we're interested in doing is demystifying garment production. You know, we're trained to have a kind of throwaway relationship to clothes um, and to sort of not think about the human labor that goes behind producing a garment. And so one of the things that Jumpsuit does is we work with a lot of people who don't know how to sew, have never sewn anything before, and like walking them through the steps of making this garment as you're doing it, thinking about, well, actually all your clothes are made like this. And like, yeah. this is very hard work. And and so like, how does that then begin to allow us to empathize with garment workers, people that we might not see or consider when we go into H&M and buy a very cheap tank top. Yeah. Um, so that's a major part of the project is how do you demystify um, the supply chain um, through a garment? Mm -hmm. So, you know, in thinking about how complicated our clothes are <laughs> to make, um, the average American um, buys, I think it's a little over a garment a week, um, which is Kind of spectacular, actually, especially if you think about making yourself a garment, a new garment every week. Even just understanding quality, because um, we don't we don't sew anymore, and so it's very. I think it's actually really challenging to understand what what is something that is well made. Like, what does that look like exactly? Many people um, are under the incorrect assumption that like that our clothes are made by robots um and that really? oh absolutely I have this conversation yeah. with people all the time yeah um there is one robot that makes t-shirts um it's i'm sure we'll get i'm sure we'll get there but all of our clothes are made by hand it might be that one person only sews um a collar point and that's the only thing that they do in a factory for the entire time that they're there that day um and then there are other factories wherein maybe somebody makes a, a whole garment from start to finish which is how jumpsuit is made yeah but it's it's funny that people really really people think that our clothes are made by robots it makes a certain amount of sense right because if you go to a store like h&m where you can actually literally buy a tank top for a dollar 99 like how can you conceive of someone having spent their time sewing that thing when it's so cheap mm -hmm. like that the cheapness of the price point makes it seem impossible I think that somebody has sewn it um but actually it's just that that person is being radically radically undercompensated yeah. I mean like it's not injected molded plastic compensated is like the wrong word it's like slave labor almost um so I think that like it, it's difficult to conceive of a reality in which there are so many ubiquitous cheap garments and every single one of them has been touched by one or multiple people like has been put together by hand mm -hmm. um, is really difficult for people to conceptualize. We then talk about cost. So the lure of cheap along with convenient has largely been what makes us as consumers okay with all kinds of labor and environmental abuse, not to mention the loss of American jobs and local business. 
And as wages go down and time is lost to more work and more distraction, we get even more locked in. At this point, a fair price seems greedy and more personal effort seems old-fashioned. Ethically produced goods can cost five to ten times the equivalent from Walmart or Amazon. They're also harder to find and nowhere near as profitable for owners. Abigail talks about this dynamic that makes things virtually impossible for small businesses that value quality, craft, and fair wages. That was the other frustration from from me from having a line is always having to justify the cost. Um, you know, because it, there's um, we're trained to understand that the lowest price is the fairest price. Um, like that's the way that we believe this. So if Mora has a store up the street um, and is selling a tank top for twenty dollars, and at your store I can buy it for eighteen, I think that Mora is greedy. So that's how it works on the the low end. On the high end, it's weirdly the opposite. Um, and so a designer handbag, the cost is ten to twelve times what the material cost is. Um, and so when you're buying a Louis Vuitton handbag covered in their hideous logo, um, <laughs> and you're you're buying this thing for five thousand dollars, the material cost is radically radically smaller than that um but what you're buying what you're what you're paying for is the perceived value or the prestige is the other way to look at that um and so it's it's this interesting um economy where you really end up with everything it's really bifurcated um so you have on the one hand extremely expensive things which are inflated um and then on the other hand you have these uh these really radically underpriced um garments yeah. um, and as a working designer it's actually just not possible to compete with either of them right so if you have um like i don't have the funds of forever 21 which is an enormous company. Um, I think the the owner of Zara, I always forget, he pops up and down on the number of the He's in the richest. top five, always. He's, in the, he's yeah. in the top five richest people in the world. Um, so, uh, you know, so there's there's that. Um, or on the other side, you have, uh, you know, Keering or um, like other uh, LVMH, like these huge luxury conglomerates, which also have an enormous sum of money. Um, and so as, a, as somebody in the middle... Like what? What is left for you? Um, like how do you, you know, if you if you cannot inflate things to have a greater perceived value, um, and it is unacceptable to you to not pay your workers, um, then what exactly are you supposed to do? Um, and so you know, rather than quit, um, which you know seemed really tempting there for a minute, um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, think like thinking about there's there just has to be another way, and I think that's the, a lot of a lot of what we're talking about. Some, um, of, some of the way that we sort of conceive of jumpsuit is we ask ourselves, like, if we were a normal fashion company, what decision would we make? And then we make the opposite decision. Right. Um, so <laughs> it's sort of a conceptual experiment in that way. Um, so, like, for example, you know, if you're buying a garment at H&M, the way that those garments are produced is... Uh, through a planned obsolescence model. So the the industry standard, which this is like the published industry standard, like what they admit to um, across the board for fast fashion garments is that they'll retain their value for no more than 10 wash cycles. So when you're producing that massive amount of clothes, you have to basically force consumers to continuously repurchase, right? So that's the reason that you buy something at H&M. It's really fun at first, and then you throw it in the dryer once, and all of a sudden it's like pilled and weird looking, and you're like, why did I buy this? Um, that's by design to make get you back into the store as quickly as possible yeah and that's true with a lot of kinds of design like they're optimizing for the feel of it and the look of it at the time of purchase 
and it may not be able to be cleaned or repaired or so that's where like the design like the design energy goes towards like manufacturing desire right and, right or then and, and it's the, the immediate desire it's like a slot machine level of desire right yeah. like you pull the lever and you get a little shot of serotonin when you buy the dumb thing in the store for five dollars and but then you go home and it's immediately kind of empty you know like there's no kind of lasting pleasure um or or little lasting mm-hmm. pleasure in most of those garments um because that you're exactly right that's not what it's designed to do so for jumpsuit you know our idea is well you know if you're h&m so you make a massive amount of cheap garments in a small number of sizes and you charge very little for us we make one garment we will only ever make one garment and we make it in a massive number of sizes so like normally you know you have like a bunch of different garments and you've got like four sizes small medium large extra large so for us, we make one garment and we have 248 sizes. And and so, and every decision that we make when we make jumpsuit is to try to maximize its durability. My jumpsuits, you wash them, they get nicer. Like they mm-hmm. get softer and nicer, you know? Um, you can kind of like start, break them in like yeah. jeans, you know? They start like, molding to your body. They mold to your body. They have a lot of top stitching. Like we yeah. make them, every decision we make, we ask ourselves, how can we improve the longevity of this garment yeah. and improve the fit so that it feels good on your body yeah. um, without like a bunch of bullshit spandex I, have <laughs> I think about like the clothes that I that I still have um and that uh, the clothes that I love and generally speaking um they're either the ones that I've had from friends which I recognize I'm in a lucky position of knowing a lot of fashion designers and or pieces that I've invested more money in because you think harder about them um and so like the decisions that you're that you're making then are really about like what is what is this thing do I really like it? Where am I going to wear it? How often am I going to wear it? How do I clean this? Am I too cheap to go to the dry cleaners? The answer is yes. Um, but you know, like what, you know, like how do I? How am I? What is the life of this thing? Um, or what is this thing in relationship to my life? Um, and the, like those are the pieces that I save. Um, and so it's the uh, that other the other stuff is really it's just garbage. It's like, it's like white bread. It's the white bread of our closets. <laughs> yeah, it seems fashion is some mix of utility and identity and fantasy. Fashion is um, uh, aspirational, right? Um, like we, we always sort of want to be somebody else. Um, and so I think a lot of, a lot of what, and it, why, why the sense of, I think, things being empty, right, is that you're just, you're wrapping something. You're wrapping, um, you know, value. You're wrapping luxury. You know, you're wrapping taste refinement wealth you know whatever whatever the wrapper is that that gets um placed around this garment but that it's not actual um and so of course it is empty when you get it home because it's not in the spaceship that rem Coolhouse designed you know <laughs> it's it's actually just in your living room um which which like suddenly makes your living room even more sad right because it's not a rem cool house spaceship <laughs> um, um and so you know i think it like it actually just ends up reinforcing making you feel terrible which then t- sends you back into the rem cool house spaceship yeah so so what boutique has he designed oh he, he designs always for prada he okay and, that's yeah, what yeah, i thought yeah, like yeah so like you're in this friends. very very architectural modern yeah dressing well room. yeah yeah it's they look like crazy elevators yeah. I'm, um, I'm working on another project that has me in a lot of these spaces and um they are uh frequently the really hideous spaces um actually i have uh, photographic evidence so i want to go into that 248 sizes because that is no small feat and i don't 
Has that ever been done with a line before? Um, that is a really good question. Um, ish, a little bit. Um, so there's, um, there is a company um, that makes uh, motorcycle gear. Um, so it's usually like highly specific clothing. Um, so wetsuits, for example, which is not so dissimilar to a jumpsuit. <laughs> um, and then uh, this other, um, this one company in particular um, that I'm aware of called Aerostitch. Um, and they make, uh, they make these motorcycle garments. Um, that are uh, a pant that zips onto your jacket, um, which is very much a uh, function, which I, and I, um, I love looking at and talking about motorcycle clothing, yeah. um, not because I wear it, but because it's actually, it's, it's really, it's incredibly functional. Um, and actually it's a certain, uh, like Carhartt I find really interesting. I love, I love turning those garments inside out, um, and sort of looking at exactly why it is that different design decisions have been made. Um, Carhartt does not come in 248 sizes it does not, because pre jumpsuit, I always wanted a Carhartt yeah, they're and they're huge. There's no sizes. You cannot get yeah. them for a smaller body. It's, that's correct. <laughs> that is correct. But the two things that those have in common, um, is that the pant and the shirt are part of the same garment um so that's largely how you end up with 248 sizes or one of the reasons and so we have um six different base body types body types that we've labeled um a v and i um so a skews a little bit broader at the hip so that somebody with a um a slightly wider uh waist to hip ratio um v goes in the opposite direction where your shoulders um and or bust level is a little bit wider um and then i is more of like an average common um proportional uh, relationship between the hip and the chest and the waist um, and then to each of those sizes you can add bust darts to accommodate breasts which we call fitted and unfitted that's our terminology for that yeah yeah, yeah. um which we've we batted around for a really long time actually we haven't just, been like, able to do better than that yeah when you're inventing a new sizing system and plus trying to actually have people be able to understand it and purchase or download your garment successfully it's like well how do you you know it was really important for us to like get rid of um normal sizing language and because what does a small mean anyway because a small means very little and also people have like a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. and weird aspirational body stuff going on with those words Mm -hmm. um so we wanted to we knew we wanted to get rid of those words we knew we didn't want to have like a male or female garment in any kind of straightforward way we wanted to accommodate a wider gender binary than that like or get off the gender binary or whatever a gender spectrum not a gender binary Mm -hmm. um and so uh so anyway so questions like how do you acknowledge the existence of breasts without falling back on male-female language um, has been an ongoing thing. And so anyways, we've landed on these words, fitted and unfitted, and I-V-A. I think we're going to have to introduce an O, but that raises a different set of problems. Yes, anyways, (laughs) at every juncture, we've had to kind of invent a language, um, which also amuses us in some ways, because again, we're not, like, we're an opposite clothing company, and so for us, like, to have a page that has all this crazy detail about how you figure out what your size is, is in some ways kind of delightful and satisfying to us, Mm -hmm. Um, because it makes you really think hard about bodies and how you normally approach a garment, you know? The downside is is that I'm sure some large percentage of our potential customer base doesn't quite make it to through figuring out where their size is exactly. But we're also kind of okay with that. Like our, yeah. we're not a company that's trying to 
um, grow or make money in any kind of straightforward way. Primarily to us, the thing is to get people to think about their garments in a critical right. way. And so right. any way that we do that is interesting to us. Totally. Yeah. And which is, which is very exciting because when, um, when people do engage in our sizing system, like that is also an education. Yes. Right. Like, um, like the numbers are actually meaningful. Um, so, uh, like you, there, you have all of our measuring charts. Um, the height, the height is generally not a contentious measurement, uh, generally. <laughs> um, but the like the the hip, chest, and waist certainly are. Yeah. Um, and so hip, uh, hip also means the full seat. So that includes the butt, which is another thing that's sort of confusing, even in um, in terms of language. Um, like when we think about hip, you think about hip huggers, right, or where it is that your jean sits. Um, but in pattern language, that's actually your high hip, and your full hip is your whole bum. Um, and so that's also confusing because I'm used to um, I'm rigid sometimes um, and so I'm used to just calling it the hip and so we've had to figure out like okay how do you how do we use this language as it's designed right like as it's used in industrial fashion design um, but also uh, how do we how do we explain this and in words that actual people understand additional sizes um, get uh, created largely because of the difference in height and that has a lot to do with range of movement um so the the garment is designed to have like maximum uh range of movement um without looking crazy um so sort of has a it has a semi-tailored look um so it is neither baggy nor tight um and the idea is that you can ride a bicycle in it right you could um pick up your child you can tie your shoe uh you know you could run a mile if you wanted or needed to i don't recommend exercising in jumpsuit though um <laughs> be a little hot yeah um, <laughs> ventilation uh, reasons yeah because you couldn't it was so so exciting for me to do all of this research into the sizing system. Um, and of course, like I started out with all of my fashion textbooks, like I'm a fashion design professor um, and I teach pattern making. And so I have a, I'm an enormous stack of these textbooks um, and it became immediately clear to me that every single sizing table was precisely useless. Um, you know, it just was so narrow um, that like, you know, there are women and there are men and there are children and that's it. And you know, all women have a 10 inch difference between their waist and their hip. And if they don't fuck you. Um, <laughs> you know, like, uh, and so it was, uh, it was really, really exciting to sort of go through and figure out, well, like, where is like, where does this anthropometric data come from? Like who's, bodies did get measured like how did we arrive at this um which is a really fascinating and yeah, like, incidentally racist history yeah like who decides who makes it into the official sizing table right yeah it's yeah. really it was really interesting um so i was working with data um sizing data from uniform companies um frequently there's um there's a lot of military data um there's a little bit from nasa um so it's like who like as a uniform company um you would need to fit a broad range of actual bodies not idealized bodies in the same way that like a Prada does, for example, <laughs> um, right? Where you can, if your hip is over 40 inches, you know, it's uh, out. I mean, get out. Abigail explains how jumpsuit was also optimized for DIY with special attention to template design and an instructional video. So making your own is doable even for beginners. So for a jumpsuit, like the conscious decision that we made is to have each pattern um, already designed as a template. Um, and so like in thinking about like how complicated it is to sew a garment, um, like there are ways in which you can structure 
I'm going to use like a terrible set of words here, but the user experience, right? Like you can sort of think about like, you know, you can imagine somebody not having never sewn before and thinking, okay, what, where, where are they likely to make mistakes? Because you've never done it before. And of course you will make them. So for example, like if you were a size Mora slash Abigail slash Delta, um, you could download this pattern um, and all of the pattern pieces are, are tiled sort of Tetris-like um, to use the maximum to have maximum yield so you're not wasting so much fabric. Um, and the idea is that you download the garment, you can print it out, um, and then you put the whole, you slap that whole piece of paper down onto some fabric, put some pins in it, and then you just cut around it. Um, and so there's no figuring out what size you are, which set of dashed lines you are, um, and then having anxiety about, well, I'm going to commit to this thing, but of course it's going to be the wrong one, so I'm going to save all of my little paper bits just in case I need to retape everything. And, you know, it's like a horrible experience. Um, and so we we're trying to avoid that. Um, so that's one way in which our patterns are, have been designed. I made one myself at a workshop, and I have to say... It fit better than anything I made from a commercial pattern. Sizing is always a huge issue. With patterns, I'm a bigger size than I expect, which contrasts with that phenomenon at stores where my size generally seems to be getting smaller. As far as sizing goes, in a store situation, um, there's something called vanity sizing, um, which I th has become less terrible. There was a, a minute in like the early mid aughts where it got really out of control. Um, and what a vanity sizing, all that means is um, uh, if I go into a store like a Banana Republic or something um, and I try on a nice pair of uh, slacks um, and it's a size eight, but uh, but usually I wear a size 10, um, I'm really excited because now I am a size eight, right? Like I have arrived. Um, and so I'm going to buy far more of these pants because they speak to how it is that I would like to see myself. Um, never mind that the size of my bum hasn't changed, right? Like I'm the same shape, um, same weight, you know, whatever, however you want to measure it. Um, so that's vanity sizing. Um, and so uh, when people talk about the the tyranny of like the triple zero um, and everybody gets very upset and, you know, they're like, what does this mean? And da, 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 da. Um, it's not that the people who fit into a triple zero um, changed, right? We haven't gotten smaller. Um, it's just that the other side, that we've been vanity sized um, to the point where, so let's say there used to be a size two. That size two is now a triple zero. Um, because that size eight is actually, you know, in reality, a size 14 um, or whatever. So everything sort of um, gets scooted off of the off of the chart. Um, so that's largely has to do with sales um, in the retail section. Um, and then in the pattern, in the commercial pattern section, it's um, it is always easier to take something in <laughs> um, than to let something out. Um, and so if you're cutting your pattern sizes uh, too small um, and you sew it up, you've wasted all of your fabric. Like if it doesn't fit, you're sort of SOL. Um, so that's that's my theory there. Um, it's just when you're a beginner and you're trying to like, oh, I'm going to make my own outfit. Right. And yeah, you do realize how hard it is. The people making your garments that you think is a robot is actually doing an amazing job. That's right. Really, that's <laughs> right, really right. hard to do. Um, but that you put into all this work into it and it's super big and now I don't know how to... Which is, do, fix it? Do I take it all apart and totally. do it again? And 
It's like, forget it. You... And then you just don't even want to deal with right. it. Right. So why would you do it? Right. Like, cause you think like, Hey, this is difficult and B it looks like shit. Um, you know, so like, how do you, like, why would anyone do that? Right. Plus I, um, I'm the other thing that makes me crazy is how stupid our home sewing machines are now. Um, and they like, they just break endlessly. And so everybody just thinks, Oh, this is very difficult. Um, but it's, it's not, it's not actually, it's just that like the machines are garbage. Yeah. The patterns are garbage, you know, yeah. like, it's not they're not designed they're not designed for the user we're living in a sea of garbage these days <laughs> that's terrible i found a buy it once subreddit sorry this is uh <laughs> where people post things like that have worked since 1972 oh it's my really cool actually oh my gosh, yeah that's beautiful. someone pointed it out to me the other day and i'm really into it it's like my grandfather's alarm clock from mm. 1972 you yeah. know yeah yeah pretty awesome it's yeah. exciting when things work for more than six months <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, and I think, I don't know if that comes with age, like, over time you've bought stuff and you realize this this was just, ter- like, I bought this in plastic and it, you know, it looked yeah. good in the store and clean and yeah. and now I brought it home, I can't clean it, I can't fix it, I yeah. can't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if anybody's going to be buying a sewing machine, um, I recommend buying them by the pound. Um, the heavier the sewing machine is, um, the better, generally speaking, um, because it means that all of the parts are going to be uh, metal and not plastic. Um uh, and I would also recommend against one that's computerized, because uh, you can't you can't fix it you can't fix it yourself. Um, so they um, the modern machines use something called a stepper motor, um, and those are uh, those are unless you have like training, <laughs> you it's hard to fix. Um, whereas like the older like the older machines like your you know grandma's machine from 1974 that came in avocado color, um, like that's a great thing. It weighs 50 pounds and it's not like a super picnic to take it. To haul it around with you um but it will not break and you can fix it and uh, it's there it's um i love taking a screwdriver to a sewing machine um and ripping the whole thing apart yeah they're like uh bicycles yeah it's yeah. exactly like a bicycle yeah. yeah so are there certain brands that you think are either it's not really about the brand it's not by by the pound <laughs> okay that's good to know i do the same thing with irons too actually i had to um i had to get a new iron uh, recently and um i went to um the worst place in the world um target um and i like ripped every single iron that they had um out of its packaging and i stood around and lifted each one until i found the heaviest one and that's the one i bought <laughs> um it was like 23 dollars or something and it's fantastic uh, I wish we could have made in the USA irons. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think that brings up another great part of your project. So your jumpsuits are all made in the USA, mm-hmm. and even the parts or the the pieces, the fabric, the zippers. Can you talk about how you um, source the components, the materials, and also the labor for your jumpsuit? Okay, so the um, components, this is... Uh, I'm happy to talk about the sourcing, but I'm also, um, right currently, I am more excited um, that we we just worked on this document um, to actually talk about, like, where all of the information, like, what is this thing, right? Like, what are, A, what goes into a garment, which is more than everybody thinks. Usually you think, like, fabric done um but of course there's um there's something called fusible interfacing which gives a little bit of extra structure um there's the um the pocketing the so the on the inside pocket like if you have a pair of jeans um that's that white material that's not denim it's like the one thing on your jeans that's not denim um so that's another fabric um uh, where does the thread come from? Uh, what different types of thread are you using? Uh, I think I said zipper already. Um, so there are a million different components, um, and they all come from different places. Um, and so uh, I 
I was interested in sort of making that information public really largely is about radical transparency. Um, And so like, how do you explain to everybody exactly how this thing was made Um, and like who made it and And how much everything costs and how much everything costs and how much the people are getting paid who are sewing it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, So, uh, so we are about to launch uh, denim. Um, and one of the reasons that I wanted to switch the material from uh, the twill that we typically use um, to denim is that it's a little bit easier to track the provenance. Um, so uh, for whatever reason, um, denim, denims and twills are like two of the only fabrics that we still make in the U.S. Uh, and then uh, there are different threads. We still make thread in the U.S., um, amazingly. Um, there's like a little shell of a textile industry still in the South. Um, but it's also you can look up like who makes our clothes. Um, so there's... Uh, uh, right now we're working primarily um, with a woman named Grace Duval out of Chicago. Um, so that's who we primarily work with. Who we're working with sort of depends on like how much we're manufacturing, which uh, like, you know, we get, I don't know, sometimes we get like a, there will be some funny story that comes out in like a tech blog and we'll get like a million orders um, in a week. And then other times we get like one order a week, you know, <laughs> or, yeah. so it just sort of, it just depends on like vo- uh, volume essentially, like how much, like who we're, pro- who we're producing with. Um, so Grace is one person, um, and she makes them in her studio. Uh, sometimes we use, uh, another woman named Leo, um, who's also based in Chicago and she has maybe six or seven operators that work for her. How it is that somebody would go about sourcing this, um, is tricky. And, uh, part of it, Part of it, you kind of like you gotta know a guy. You don't search for it on the internet, um, it, which is funny because you can like get everything made on the internet, right? Yeah. Um, and it's there's the, it's a slightly antique in that way, like this industry. Like you sort of have to be like vetted in a way. Or um, I think I think a lot of being an artist though in general is about like being in a community and yeah. then like because a lot of video production is like that also. Like who are you like? Yeah. Like you work for people and they introduce you to people and then you're in a community and then you know Mm -hmm. because you know people who are doing stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's a lot of that is is just about like whether or not you seem like somebody who's going to waste their time. Yeah. Um, So, you know, we went to when we first had our patterns digitized, um, I went to this um, amazing uh, (laughs) place in uh, the garment district in New York. And there there was this guy named uh, Mario. Um, And Mario has like, I mean, there's like a million people running around in there. Um, And everything is like, everyone's pulling out patches of their hair because it's the fashion industry. Um, And I I have this insane sizing system that I'm trying to explain to Mario. Um, And he's got this like, amazing New York accent you know and he's looking at me and he's like wait what do you want me to do um you know he's getting really like agitated and I was like oh god he's gonna think I don't know what I'm talking about but I can't I can't say to him that I do know what I'm talking about I'm just gonna like quietly wait for him to figure this out um and then you know so we keep talking a little bit more and finally he like leans down on the table and he's there um do you uh, do you make these patterns and I was like I did he's there they're very neat (laughs) <laughs> and I, I like could have cried. I could have cried. I was so happy to have Mario's approval um, because uh, because I he understood that I wasn't somebody who was going to waste his time, right? Like it was like I like I had made these patterns. I knew what I was talking about. They're labeled correctly. Like they don't look like a pile of garbage, which apparently we we had a wonderful mm-hmm. conversation about. You know, kids these days. <laughs> um, uh, but so it's uh, yeah, it's I think Mario just said it really nicely. A lot of it's just about community and. Building a building a community and um, building trust, paying paying people, um, period. Mm-hmm. 
actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Leo, when she was making our jumpsuits, you know, she would say, Abigail, this is actually a really hard garment. Um, you know, can we, you know, can we raise the price, you know, $5, $7? And I was always like, of course, of course, you know, like I don't, I, it's yes. Whatever, whatever you need. <laughs> yeah. The jumpsuit is an amazing and innovative endeavor. Is it a sustainable business? And does that really matter? Mara and Abigail speak openly about their expectations and rewards from the project and how they support themselves. My background is in um, video and like conceptual art. And so I was used to, A, never making any money off of anything that I did ever. And that was sort of an explicit, that was something that my teachers had told me. Like I knew going into doing that kind of work that there was no money in it and that I would have to have like a series of day jobs to support that. And that if I went through enough school, I could get better day jobs (laughs) that would be more flexible and that would pay a little bit better. Um, So that I could have, like I could work like four days a week and then have three days in the studio. Um, And so, you know, that had been, that was more or less a way that I was comfortable with working and it's still basically the way that I work. We've been able to get grant money and I've gotten grant money for my other work. And so I'm not saying that the way that I live is like really sane or great, but it does make me very happy, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I teach part time and um, I have project oriented work. And if I'm lucky, I get a grant for what I'm doing that underwrites that allows me to have an assistant and um, pay uh, for people to help me do material things that I need. Um and then most of my actual like living is paid for by part-time teaching jobs that I've been able to piece together like across Los Angeles for the last couple of years. When I talk to my students about how they see themselves as creative people after they graduate, you know, like there's it depends a little bit on the student, but there's a lot of anxiety about like what you want to be doing versus what you assume you're going to have to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then, like, wh- and then as to like professional artists and designers, like, where does that leave us if like you're always conceiving of your work as like a sort of secondary thing that you're gonna try to do on the weekends, you know? But meanwhile, you're paying two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a degree in that thing, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really complicated. Yeah, it is really complicated. So yeah. I think I think to answer your question directly, um, for how it is that I live. Um, so I've been teaching since 2009 and then, uh, recently ish, so about two and a half years ago, um, uh, got a tenure track job, which is really exciting. Um, so most of my, uh, livelihood comes from teaching. Um, so that's where, and then most of my money goes right into my projects. (laughs) (laughs) But for a long time you spent, you were teaching part-time and had a line and were making money also on the line. So this is a new transition. This is a, a, yeah. And it's actually like a radical, it's, it has radically changed my life in ways that I did not expect at all. So you, you have this sheet where you talk about your costs. If I'm not wrong, it seems like a lot of your labor costs are not on that sheet. Is that (laughs) <laughs> is that true? <laughs> oh my god. And I, I and I know from from what you say about being of your expectations as artists or as the grind of the fashion industry um that your your costs are not necessarily in there. So can you talk about that and also talk about where you do get funding and uh where you do 
how you sustain your life and your project. I feel like you just looked into my eyes and yeah. saw my soul. <laughs> um, the, tough, yeah. the tough questions. Yeah. Our labor is not on the costume. So um, I am comfortable, I guess, with not being paid for my labor. I'm not comfortable with other people being not compensated for their labor. You know, one of the things that's really unfortunate um, about the art world and working, and I would say that Jumpsuit, although Jumpsuit operates when it wants to, like a fashion business, I do think that it's an art model, an Mm -hmm. art production model in terms of it's a research-based project. Um, it has an endpoint, even if it's sort of a conceptual endpoint. It isn't a business that's meant to self-perpetuate endlessly. And and I'm not saying that this is right, but it's very much what I was schooled in, which is that um, as an artist, everyone gets paid except you. <laughs> that's true. Um, that's true in design. Also, I was yeah. just I was just thinking that this is actually probably a hangover. It's also from my training, disciplinary. Yeah. 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 Um, and and I I don't I think that there are a lot of I think that a lot of capitalism is set up to exploit people who aren't primarily motivated by money. And in that, there's some understanding in the larger world, not like an evil single person, but systemic understanding that there are always people operating under the auspices of capitalism who aren't making decisions primarily because they're trying to accrue capital and are making decisions because they're interested in an idea or they want to engage with a community and that there are other things that you prioritize. And then the result of that is that there are is that there are always sort of larger structures who are willing to take advantage of you, you know, in small ways all the time continuously. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, do you think you would, because I, I know this project operates in many different worlds. It's, it's someone an art project, it's someone a fashion line, um, it's someone a business. Um, and I think depending on how you identify um, that that affects the decisions. Do you think you get criticism or blowback for operating in a more business sense in in an art field? That's a good question. That's a great question, actually. And it's I have we have a mutual friend who works um, in the in museums, and uh, she was talking to us about how the project allows you to operate. Like that, the, there's the potential to operate financially outside of outside of institutions. Um, so, like that is not that it could potentially be that it could actually sustain itself. And I, I should say that like we're less interested <laughs> in producing the garment. So I think like it is it is viable. I I would argue um, that like if I think if we were inclined at all um, <laughs> towards um, towards really like selling the garment, um, then I think like either one of us or both of us actually could probably quit our jobs, you know, and then it, and then we that labor we would be compensated. Um, but I think we're more interested in the way that the project functions not as a product um, or that the the product functions as a vehicle to discuss other things. Um, so it's like, it is necessary. Um, like you need the garment to provoke the conversation. Um, but you do not need to turn the product (laughs) into the thing, um, you know, sort of into the, the larger piece. Yeah. I mean, I, I I do think that that's just a choice that we've made and that we seem to be continuing to make, which Mm -hmm. is that 
our priority has been I, it's very important to me that there's that their jumpsuit retains this practical element. Like it's important to me that it be available to download or to buy just in as much as I want people to be able to have something to wear if they want it. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me feel good. A lot of the people who buy jumpsuits maybe don't normally fit into jumpsuits. Like we can accommodate people who are very tall or very small and like that's really satisfying when someone who can't maybe doesn't have such an easy time buying clothes is really happy. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me feel really good. And so I continue to be interested in selling the garments from that standpoint, mostly. I think that our energy and focus and the thing that makes us excited and happy to continue doing the project are the are the conversations that we're able to have either via writing, giving talks, running workshops, doing lectures, doing performances. We recently curated an exhibition of other people's garments. Yeah, I was going to talk about. Yeah, and so for us, even though that's not lucrative, um, as and basically isn't a business model, it's an art production model. Um, that that's the where we find real joy and pleasure in the project because it continues to be basically like intellectually stimulating versus selling a garment which um you know is less so frankly you know it's we know how there's a system we know yep. how to sell it we've worked that out yep. you know and I've so sold a lot of clothes in my yeah, life. <laughs> yeah and so at this point like both of us basically make you know survive like our survival money is from teaching and jumpsuit is a project that brings in enough income to be able to sustain an employee mm-hmm. um and um and that's basically it yep. <laughs> right yeah. yeah yeah and i like that's um that's one of the things that i'm one of the ways in which like my like my teaching has enabled me to make a different set of decisions as a designer um that i don't that my the motivation is no longer financial and so the choices that you're able to make are radically different then um so like when you know like when i had a more traditional line of clothes um like the decisions that i had to make were very much economic you know like like what how was i going to come up with the next you know ten thousand dollars to pay the next bill that I you know, the PedEx bill that I was getting. Um and so that and it's that doesn't produce that doesn't produce interesting work, actually. You know, like that like when you're thinking about um, it's like when companies started to go public, um, like cl- uh, garment companies, like clothing companies. Um, so then all like all of a sudden you have people in boardrooms who are making decisions that have never seen the clothes. Um, and right. so you're, ha- you're beholden to the shareholder. Exactly. Exactly. And so how could you, so like everybody always turns to fashion as being this sort of, um, bringer of innovation, you know, the, the, like the new, the fresh, you know, whatever, whatever it is, like we always sort of look to fashion to, for that. But the reality is like, if you look at, if you look at the clothes that are available, they're really by and large, they're not innovative. Um, they're really, they're the same. Right, it doesn't matter how expensive they are or how cheap they are. Um, if you're just looking at the way that they look, it's the same, right? Like they're virtually identical. And so uh, I just I don't think I like I don't economic like the like the the desire or like I don't even desire like the need um, to to only be thinking about things in economic terms um, results in uh, a visually poorer work. Well, it, you want to mitigate risk, right? It's like why every movie is like a sequel to a superhero movie because there's so much money at stake. There's a formula that produces that will bring in that will cover costs and bring in X amount of revenue to deviate from what has done that in the past. Uh, is inherent is to take a risk that is not necessary right mm-hmm. so like if your decisions are all financial 
it stifles innovation, I, I would argue, like really directly, yeah. you know, in yeah. any in yeah. any, in creative any, field. any creative field. Yeah. yeah. And so we're lucky to have been able to find these like alternate ways of supporting ourselves that happen to dovetail very well with our practices. We naturally, like we see Jumpsuit as pedagogical. Mm-hmm. We love teaching. We have eight pages of information on our sizing info page. And so for us, like teaching is a really natural fit um, for both of us that yeah. we love. It's yeah. not like a thing that we do because we have to do it. That's right. It's a thing that we mm-hmm. choose to, that I, if I won the lottery, I would still teach at I least I one too. I would teach one class oh, are you kidding? it would just be fun because I wouldn't have to like care about how much money I was getting paid but it, I would still totally I love teaching I love teaching too so it. so much it, yeah. um and so for us it's been like you know I don't think that it's necessarily like total like that it's necessarily just that our labor isn't included in the price sheet but it's a it's a trade-off that we're willing to make to be able to have the intellectual and creative freedom to try an alternative model right and that's um so like on you know ongoing future future projects like we're both also sort of thinking about this um outside of the project also so Mm -hmm. like um I'm starting to think about the ways in which like like th- I think about my students a lot, right? Um, and like what what they're going to do when they graduate. Um, and I, you know, I have all these. I have I have like the best students actually. Um, I love them. They're amazing. Um, and they have a lot of them have these. They're they're so smart. Um, and they have these incredible like these incredible ideas. And they're all like really frustrated trying to figure out like well how can I actually make this thing? You know when I'm going to actually have to move to New York and live with 20 other people in like a crappy garden apartment and make, you know, design 500 SKUs of sneakers every week. Um, uh, and so I, I've been thinking a lot about them. And I, I think a couple a couple of things that we're both sort of stewing on is like figuring out how to um, to help fund stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that like, again, like if you're able to remove, if you're able to remove the financial um, imperative, you know, like the, the sort of economic need to, to make the pressure. Yeah, that if you're if you're able to alleviate that, like what are the ways in which like that like the work can change? You know, like that that the decisions are going to be different. So like for our sizing system, it's complicated. Um yeah, you have to you cannot order a jumpsuit unless you have already purchased a flexible measuring tape. You know, like you have to like, <laughs> like you have to and like you have to measure your body before we allow you to buy this garment. Um like that's like that is and not And you can also watch a video to learn how to measure your body correctly. <laughs> like there are steps and steps and there steps. There are like endless yeah. steps, which is yeah. not like partly because we just want to like we want to have people have this information. Um but if like those are um, if we were thinking like, how do we sell these garments and how do we sell them quickly? We couldn't do any, we couldn't have made any of those decisions. Um, and I think that that, like the decisions that we have made are the, some of the most important, right? Like it is important to understand how to measure yourself. It is important to understand why it is that our clothes don't fit. It is important to understand where this garment came from. Um, but all of those extra steps are um, in many ways, like you would never do that for another company because it would require you to, think too much it would be it would be too hard right and the idea of like shopping um is about not thinking like it replaces thinking with emotion right how does this make you feel um and then you know that's and then all of a sudden your credit cards are out yeah yeah i mean one of the things i think is that like if we you know we can't pretend that we're not operating under capitalism right like i can't I can't be like, well, I'm just going to make all these decisions and never think about how I'm going to feed myself, right? Like that's like we're always making compromises in order to be able to live and do the work that we want to be able to do. Abigail and I are utopians, and I hope that we're beginning to lay the groundwork for other people to be able to work 
in a different way as well. And that in aggregate, if a whole bunch of people are doing different things or have the breathing room to think about different systems, mm-hmm. that that's how we begin to extricate ourselves from the horror show that is neoliberal capitalism. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> so what's next for Jumpsuit? So, um, (laughs) we've been working on uh, this project since last summer, actually, called Make America Rational Again. So we've been spending the last um, six months or so collecting used Ivanka Trump brand garments. After the election, uh, we read a bunch of articles about people who were trying to get rid of their Ivanka Trump clothes because, you know, these clothes are really ubiquitous. You can buy them really easily at TJ Maxx. People buy them kind of without thinking about it. The Trumps were sort of a joke, and now they're very much not a joke. Um, And so a lot of like well-meaning liberals have these clothes and don't know what to do with them. Um, So we thought we would collect them and do something with them. So we've had this sort of speculative recycling project in which um, our dream is we've got all these clothes, we're um, moving towards figuring out how to recycle them into new fiber, or I mean recycled fiber, and then use that fiber to weave them into new fabric, cut the fabric and make some special edition jumpsuits um, that would sort of make good on the promises to like make clothes in America um, that her father uh, makes by American hire American, right? Like, and, of, and of course they don't do that. Right, there's all this lip service to that, but the Trumps make all of their garments in factories oh, in China mostly, I believe, um, with Ivanka. Yeah. Um, the MAGA hats are made in Mexico. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Ironically. As a direct result of yeah. NASA, the worst <laughs> yeah. agreement yeah. ever. <laughs> the worst trade yeah. agreement of all time. Yes. Um, so, so, um, we, so that's been an interesting process. We've learned a lot about... Um, textile recycling um we continue to learn about textile recycling and so i think probably in the next couple months we're gonna figure out how to, how actually, to actually make that viable it. yeah yeah because it's um right like right now it's actually not it's more theoretical than actual the textile recycling um so there's a lot of like again lip service paid to like sustainable you know sustainable fashion or like closed loop economies you know and you see all these like wonderful diagrams of like a picture of a cotton bush and then you know a roll of fabric and then a garment and then somehow it goes right back into garment um but that (laughs) like that doesn't exist actually that's not a real thing um usually the garment then goes into the garbage um and that's how that works um And so we're trying to figure out, like, either, you know, like, one, whether or not this is possible. Mm -hmm. um, And then two, like, what would it like, what would it look like? Or if it's not possible to explain that to people, because Maura was uh, getting in a fight with somebody at H&M. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was uh, it was other stories. There was an H&M subsidiary. And uh, they were telling me that they were like, if you bring your clothes, we'll recycle them and make new clothes. And I was like, no, you're not going to do that. (laughs) I know that you're not going to do that because that is technically not possible. You maybe will be recycling these clothes. Best case scenario, they're insulation. There's no way that you're recycling clothes into other clothes. And they're like, no, we are 100% sure that's what we're doing. Anyways, um, um, (laughs) there is like a potentially sort of real process Mm -hmm. um, where you can recycle cotton. Um, And then uh, it turns it into kind of like a rayon a rayon-like fiber but whether or not that those cotton garments are actually from and other stories or h&m or whatever is like no probably they're not like there's also there's pre-consumer recycling and post-consumer um so like an industrial cutting um 
there's a really huge amount of waste. So like in a denim factory, for example, there's like a ton of uh, denim fabric that just gets wasted as a byproduct of the cutting um, because like your, your fabric is rectangular and all of your pattern pieces are curved. Um, and so like, therefore, <laughs> um, you have waste. Um, and so presumably that, the that stuff is, um, is made from that pre pre consumer textile waste, um, because it's easier to figure out what, what it's made out of. Um, so it's just like when you recycle anything, um, when you look at the bottom of the bottle and you see it's a number of six or five or whatever the numbers are, um, that just means that that's made out of all one polymer. Um, but of course, if you look at anything in your closet, it's all blended. Um, right. So, uh, so it's a acrylic mixed with spandex mixed with cotton. Um, and so you can't just microwave that <laughs> and turn it, you know, turn it into a plastic slurry, um, mm-hmm. to then make other clothes out of. Um, and so there's also a little bit more control, um, in terms of the pre-consumer, uh, recycling than there is in the post-consumer. Um, and so the, the, it's a really largely a myth, um, that, that these clothes get recycled. Also, often they're also mislabeled. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's the fiber uh, content, the fiber content. Incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so we're, so we've been excited about that and I think we're going to take the next couple of months to really like figure that out. Um, and then the, the end goal would be to produce these sort of like limited edition jumpsuits that are made out of recycled Ivanka Trump clothes and then auction those off to try to much money as as much money as possible and then take all that money and give it to the garment workers association, which is a really beautiful organization in Los Angeles. The only organization that advocates for garment workers in the United States, in the United States. Yeah. The garment, garment workers center. Yeah. There's one, there's one organization (laughs) in the entire United States that focuses (laughs) exclusively on garment workers. Yeah. 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 And you mentioned an endpoint to this project. You still have this endpoint in mind. Can you talk about that? I know people always ask us that in a sad voice, but it's it's, beautiful. Okay. (laughs) I feel sad about it, so I'm looking forward to you to convince me that's not sad. But... (laughs) Um, So the end point of the project is that uh, the project jumpsuit will end um, in as much as we will stop selling garments um, when we have generated enough money to buy a full page ad in American Vogue. Um, A full page ad in American Vogue costs $150,000. And we're at maybe, I think, negative... No, some some negative for, number. For a long yeah. time, we were at negative three thousand yeah. um, dollars. But I think. Do you think we're breaking even? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm doing my taxes. There's some buzzing math right now. We'll right now. <laughs> so suffice to say that this is a stretch goal for us. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the other thing about it is that you can't just walk with like a briefcase of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars into the Vogue offices and demand an ad. Right? They have to agree that you are also culturally significant worthy. enough to be worthy of yeah. an ad space in their beautiful magazine. So um, so <laughs> our idea is that, you know, like, you know, on the one hand, we don't want to reproduce the same economic structures that we're critiquing. So if we were a normal business, the point would be to grow and grow and grow and grow and make more and more and more money, right? But that sort of growth model is actually um, at the heart of um, our um, fucked up relationship to fashion in a lot of ways. Like there is all this pressure on this industry mm-hmm. to continuously produce more, cl- more clothes so that you can make more money, right? And this is like fundamentally an unsustainable and unsatisfying system for all the reasons we've talked mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's very important conceptually that we're not modeling there is an end point. We're not just trying to make money and grow forever. I also think that, you know, for us, like, 
you know, if we had both that kind of money and the kind of cultural capital to be able, that Vogue would go along with it, um, then I think Jumpsuit would have become a yeah. lived social reality, right? Yeah. And so yeah. our um, goals will have been achieved. Our goals will have been achieved. So it, it feels like a good uh, benchmark for us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You feel better about it, right? Seems like a beautiful flower, (laughs) like a butterfly emerging from a chrysalis. (laughs) And we'll leave the patterns online, of course, so people can make them themselves. That's important. Yeah, it's important. (laughs) Okay, I do. I do feel a little bit better about it now. (laughs) So thank you very much for talking about your project. Thank you. you. We're so happy to be on your podcast. This is so cool. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. And um, people could check out the actual jumpsuit at your website. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Jumpsu.it. And we'll definitely have links on the new constructivist as well. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Bean. Be sure to check out the episode webpage at thenewconstructivist.org for show notes and where to buy or download a pattern for your own jumpsuit. Thanks for listening. <laughs>